we're glad that you are here with us this morning. And if you have had sort of more sort of lingering questions or or thoughts around what Stephen Ministry is, I'd just encourage you to see the table on the way out in the lobby. Uh, There will be a couple of people there who will want to talk more with you, uh, whether it's you wanting to be a part of Stephen Ministry as a Stephen Ministry caregiver or one who is in need of it. I'd strongly encourage you to investigate that. Seems somewhat fitting to highlight that work, that ministry in the life of our church, and providing Christ-like listening and care, going through difficulties and challenges in life. Uh, Stephen Ministry is, is very set on that sort of work and that sort of ministry. It's, it's kind of helpful to, to highlight this ministry in light of our series in Job. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Job chapter 19. We're going to read the entirety of Job 19, sort of encapsulating the the lengthier portion of chapter 15 through 27 that we're going to consider this morning. The title of the sermon is, The Struggle is Real, uh, but so is the steadfast love of God. And we're going to wrestle with both of those things and the impact that it might have on our lives and our steadfastness in the face of suffering. So, Job chapter 19. Again, we're picking up in a, a, a moment of interaction between Job and his three friends. Uh, they have all are responding to his words in Job chapter 3 of his complaint and his crying out over his situation and his suffering. Um, again, to remind you, Job's friends have basically said, you reap what you sow. God judges the wicked and blesses the righteous. Therefore, you must have sinned, Job, and you better repent. That's what his friends came and offered him as he lost his family, his entire livelihood, and his health. That's what they said. And Job responds to them throughout their speeches back and forth. And they really get at each other. Um, as they interact around such heavy issues. And so we're picking up in that process with Job's response in Job chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Ten time, these ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way, so I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. 
I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. Heavy chapter, let's pray. God, as we consider these words, we ask for your grace to be with us. Help us as we walk through them and wrestle with them in our own hearts, in our lives, in our situations. Would you be near to us now, we pray. The preaching of this, your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. William Cooper was a great poet and hymn writer in the 18th century. He was a contemporary with names like Wesley, Whitfield, and Edwards. But Cooper was also a deeply troubled man, suffering significant depression most of his life. Before he came to faith in Christ, Cooper lost his mother at the age of six and then was sent away from his father to a boarding house where he was routinely bullied and neglected. When he was a young man, he was engaged to marry a young woman. He was engaged for two years until her father broke it off. At the age of 31, he had a major breakdown in his life and tried to take his life three times, after which he was committed to an asylum. The asylum was run by a Christian and for six months invested heavily in Cooper. And over that course of those six months, Cooper came to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. After the time in the asylum, he ended up at John Newton's church. We just sang Amazing Grace, or at least a version of it. Newton was the author of that and of many other encouragements to weary saints along the way. During that time, Newton mentored Cooper and walked with him through four more deep depressions and more attempts at taking his life. In 1773, Cooper wrote a poem called God Moves, which then became the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I want you to consider these words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break. 
and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Moving words. Moving words from a man well acquainted with suffering and sovereignty. And sadly, shortly after the publishing of God Moves, Cooper again tried to take his life. Cooper died in 1800 while suffering in the despair of a deep depression. His very last poem, to give you a sense of where he felt his life was at, his very last poem was entitled, The Castaway. The struggling with suffering is real. It's real. It's, and it's present. And in the midst of that suffering, we can lose our way. We can sink beneath despair. We can cry out for help. And at the same time, we can express great faith and dependence on God. We can Recognize that God moves in a mysterious way. We can acknowledge that behind a frowning providence is a hidden smile and yet sink in despair. And we can do all of that all at the same time. And so in some weird and strange way, I hope that you're encouraged by that. I hope that's a sense of encouragement in that you're not crazy. If you can get a sense of the life of William Cooper, or if you can hear Job's angst and and volatility of thought and emotion in, in Job 19 and in other portions of his book, if you can relate in some measure to any and all of that, I hope then, in a weird, strange way, this is an encouragement for you. That suffering is a struggle. And you're going to feel all these kinds of things in the midst of suffering. And that's actually kind of a normal experience. You're not crazy. We're going to take a look more closely at Job's response to the reality of the struggle of suffering. We want to do that and keep in the context of something bigger and better and grander and, and more glorious that's going on in the midst of our suffering. And from that, I hope that it brings to us this timely encouragement to hold on even while we feel threadbare. So as we move through Job 19, I want us to see that and get a grip of our struggle with suffering. Our struggle with suffering. As we do that, I want us to know that operating in the midst of our struggle with suffering is that there is something better going on, and that's God's steadfast love in suffering. That as we look up in the midst of this, in the midst of that which feels overwhelming to us, as we just glance up, as we look beyond what we feel like are dark clouds of a frowning providence, that there really is a smile of God upon us, that it would then lead to our steadfastness through suffering. That's how we're going to move through this. 
So let's first consider our struggle with suffering. We struggle with suffering. In the midst of our struggle with suffering, we struggle with competing beliefs. Competing beliefs that are operating in our head and our hearts. Job, over the course of these many chapters, essentially from chapter 4 through chapter 27, is responding to his friends. And in this response of Job, there's a kind of a, a structure that becomes clear. What Job is saying to his friends is that, first of all, he wants to make his case before God. His situation was that in Job chapter 1 and 2, he was not doing anything that was in willful disobedience to God. He was considered a righteous man and blameless and upright. He dealt with people respectfully. And in the midst of that, his life was vaporized. He, he lost everything, his 10 kids. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his health. He lost it all. And he didn't do something. It wasn't because of his own sinful foolishness, and it wasn't because of the consequences of his sinful actions in the world in which he lived in. He did it because Satan was unleashed upon him. And God in his sovereignty and his purposes that remain mysterious allowed this to happen. And so Job wants to make his case before God. Like, hey, this is unfair. But as he's responding to his friends, and they're, hey, you reap what you sow, you messed up somewhere, Job, you better find your sin and repent. And he's saying, no, I want to make my case before God. He, he does so with two competing despairs. One, he despairs that it won't ever happen, that he won't ever get his chance to make his case before God. Secondly, he despairs that he would get a chance to make his case before God. Because he doesn't know how this is all going to go. He struggles to believe that God will be good to him. He looks at God's involvement in all of this and thinks that there's an injustice going on. He's questioned God in many ways. And he's felt that volatility of thought and emotion. He despairs that he'll never get a chance and he despairs at the very thought of a chance. That's where he's at. His up and downs and that. In Job chapter 9, he says this in a very, maybe the darkest moment of Job's expression of his thoughts and emotions in the, in the midst of his struggle with suffering. He says this, It's all one, therefore I say, he destroys God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Who then is it? Feels like God has not been very fair. He wants to make a case, but he doesn't want to make a case. He feels the turmoil of his situation. He feels the confusion of all the unanswered whys. But he still is clinging to making a case before God. Because secondly, we find in the structure of his responses that Job continues to claim his integrity. I didn't do this. I didn't cause this. His friends have said, you've caused it. And he said, no. And then they get angry at each other. In Job 16, he says, My face is red with weeping. On my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands. And my prayer is pure. Like, I, I didn't do this. I'm absolutely broken. And you're heaping on me something that is not true. You're crushing me. 
the midst of all of his responses, these competing beliefs, God's not very fair, yet Job also recognizes the complexity of God's sovereignty. In Job chapter 23, he says, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence when I consider. I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. He, he's recognizing that God really is sovereign in the midst of the sovereignty. But, but it's also unsettling for him. He has a very complex view, um, less black and white color by number that his friends presented. And then fourthly, and we read, it, we read all of these feels so far in Job 19, And this fourth one we read as well. In the midst of his response, in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his questioning God, in the midst of his complexity, Job still in his responses expresses hope and faith in very surprising ways. In Job 19, 26 and 27, he says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Even, even believing after death, he will still be able to be with God. That comes in very surprising ways, and, and my hope is that that becomes an encouragement for you. We see Job despairing, we see Job questioning, we see Job confused, and we see Job believing. All at the same time, all in the same chapter, and maybe whatever suffering and struggles that you might be facing in life or have faced in life or will face in life, that maybe it's going to be okay for you to despair, to question, to be confused, and to yet believe. The struggle of suffering is very real and it will bring you to the depths of despair. It will cause you to question God. And it will bring great confusion upon your soul. And yet, even in the midst of the struggle of suffering, you can still believe. Even if that belief is threadbare. Weak and wobbly. Worn down and worn out. Job's responses are helpful for us. And God has given us Many chapters of them. And it reveals to us the struggle of suffering. The inexplicableness of Job's suffering has created an explosive range of beliefs, all competing for Job's heart and all being articulated by Job's mouth. Job 19 captures or encapsulates the wide-reaching range of Job's struggle with suffering. In this chapter, we see, first of all, that Job is frustrated with his friends and their view of God, the world, and of Job himself. He's frustrated with them. He's he's tired of them. And in fact, after Job 27, the the whole debate with his friends is no more. They They are no longer on the scene until God addresses them at the very end. There's another friend who shows up. We'll deal with that in a few weeks. But these three are done. Job calls it off. He says, I'm done with you. In verses 2 and 3 of Job chapter 19, he says, How long will you torment me? 
and break me in pieces with words. He's saying that to his friends. Remember, his friends showed up to provide comfort and sympathy. And here we are, and he says, how long will you torment me? Break me in pieces with words. These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Job 19, he's frustrated with them. He's done with them. In Job 19, we also see that he's frustrated with God and what seems like injustice. He's frustrated with God and he's articulating his frustration with God in this chapter. Maybe you've felt that way before. Maybe you have felt in the midst of something like this, something heavy and hard and overwhelming to you, unexpected, inexplicable, and you've been frustrated with God because it just all seems so like senseless and and the, the senselessness seems to have no bounds. And, and you're overwhelmed by it. And you're tapped out. And you're at max capacity. And you can't handle any other thing. And then the alternator in your vehicle breaks, right? Well, he's frustrated. He says, behold, I cry out violence. He's crying out to God. Violence is upon me. But I'm not answered. I call for help. But there is no justice. He, God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon me. He's he's frustrated. We also find in Job 19 that he is tired of people. He's tired of people. They're not around him. They don't want him around. And he doesn't want to be around them. Tired of people. Verses 13, 14, he has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are holy and strange for me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. I mean, can you feel in here in this chapter how alone, how overwhelmed, how empty, how tapped out Job is? He's despairing. He's questioning. He's confused. The struggle with suffering is real. It will bring you to despair. It will cause you to question and it will leave you confused. And yet, as empty as Job is, as threadbare Job might be, he is still somehow hopeful. Still somehow hopeful for vindication. We see in 25 and 20 through 27, these words, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and that the last, at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. His heart has been fainting over his situation, and his heart faints with anticipation. Both at the same time. He, he, he faints, his heart gives out because he's suffering greatly. And his heart fills up because he's anticipating something. All at the same time. Now, if you think about that, your heart emptying out because the situation and circumstances in your life are so overwhelming. It's too much for you and it just empties you out, and yet at the same time you're filled up in anticipation. Wouldn't that feel like a very exhausting emotional and spiritual exercise to go through? That's part of the struggle of suffering. Is that is indeed 
exhausting. And so if there are exhausted folks in this room right now, you're not crazy. You're experiencing the struggle of suffering. It is part of this challenging season of life. And here we are. We're reading Job. We're studying Job. And remember, I said a few weeks ago, 95% of Job is poetry. So God is not, God is concerned about your heart. You don't need logical, progressional uh, paragraphs and propositions to help make sense of suffering. God cares deeply for your heart. And here in poetry form, we find this all laid out for us to see, and to be encouraged and equipped with. I love what Eric Ortland says in his book, Suffering Wisely and Well. Job's poetry is by turns fiery and impassioned, despairing and broken, capable of flights of vision, and at other times quiet and shadowy as the grave itself. If you take your time and let the words percolate, the poetry will go to work on you such that you will taste something of Job's bitterness, even if you are not suffering yourself. It is not hard to imagine this great man sitting next to you, at times weeping, at times shouting, at times only able to whisper, at other times caught up in rapturous transport at the thought of somehow reconciling with God. Any of that relatable to you? Any of that at all relatable to you? Because you have a friend here in Job, one who knows the ups and downs and the all-overs of such thoughts and such emotions. And God cares so compassionately for his people, he's given us the book of Job to give us some sort of bearings in the struggle of despairing, of questioning, of, of, of um, um, crying out, of, of longing, of hope, in the midst of all the things that can go sideways in life. We need to know and recognize and be okay with this reality. Suffering stretches our capacity to make sense of life. And maybe we've been dodging that reality. We've been trying to tough our, our you know, tough it out and get, you know, just move through it as if we're above the fray. Just act as if it's not really there. Never really address it. Well, that's not a healthy way to handle it, because suffering will indeed stretch our capacity to make sense of life on a much smaller scale. And I guess mainly this is mostly for the men because we make terrible sick people when we have a head cold. Um, I think all the laughter is a version of amen, I, I would assume. <laughs> There's a lot of acknowledgement of this. Maybe this is mostly for the men. But when you're sick with a cold or a fever, your capacity to be patient or kind dwindles. Your capacity to keep your bearings. No, you're not dying. You just have a cold, you know. But it does. When we're physically worn down, our capacities for things like patience and kindness sort of, sort of suffer. They're, they're, they're at their limit. We don't have much left. So suffering dwindles our capacities. Capacities to keep our head up. Capacities to keep perspective. Cap, the capacities to make sense of what we are experiencing. In many ways, 
when we are suffering and suffering greatly, suffering something like what we see here with Job. It's like a a smoke alarm is going off and we can't turn it off. I've heard it explained in that way before. Struggling under the constant barrage of suffering is is like having a smoke detector going off in your head and your heart, but never being able to hit the button to stop it. What do you do in your kitchen when that goes off? Everyone breaks into a panic. You're toppling over everything. You're knocking over the bar stools. You're throwing children up at the ceiling to hit the button. It's like utter panic and pandemonium going It's a loud and distracting and overwhelming sound. Now imagine that going off in your heart and you can't hit a button. There's no button to hit. You're going to to lose your bearings. And if you feel like you are losing your bearings, understand that that comes with this struggle. This is the struggle with suffering. This is what we see in Job 19. In the totality of Job, the struggle is real. And while it doesn't feel okay, I just want you to hear, like that's okay to feel all those things. Despair and question and confusion. But please know and please hear in the midst of that, if there's anything to just give you a sense of bearings and the noise of suffering, is that in the midst of it all, God's steadfast love is indeed over suffering. Because God is still holding on to Job. Therefore, God is still holding on to you. You may not see it, feel it, hear it, or know it, or sense it. That doesn't make it not true. No matter how volatile and erratic and emotional Job's perspective and words and pleading may be, no matter how exaggerated or extreme, like wishing for death as we considered last week, Job still can't toss the towel in. He wants to. It's in his hand. He's about to make the motion, but he can't. He can't. Again, Job 19, 25 and 27, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Job's wished for death. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, he's questioned why he was ever born. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. He doesn't think God's been very fair. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job has despaired, he has questioned, he has called God's justice into play. He is he's confused, and yet he can't throw the towel in. Something else is going on. Job still knows something about God. And maybe that's deep down in his heart and his subconscious even. Maybe he can't even really access it right in this moment, but he just knows it's there. He knows something about God, that God lives, that God will live, and that Job will live with God too. Not because of something in Job, but because of something with God. And he can't quite put the word on it yet. That comes with suffering when we're so overwhelmed. 
In that, he says, his Redeemer lives. Familiar words, maybe. If you, maybe you've, you've seen those words quoted from Job. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And that he shall see God even after death. The word Redeemer can mean two things in the Old Testament. One, it means a social role of a relative buying back their, their relative or the land of their relative who's experienced some sort of great misfortune that a family member can come and rescue that family uh, member if they've experienced some great misfortune. We actually have a wonderful uh, book in the Old Testament that gives that picture in, in a profound way in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is that sort of redeemer who buys back this family in the midst of their misfortune. And it's prefiguring the work that Jesus would do in redeeming his people. It would be pointing forward to Jesus. The other way that redeemer, the word for redeemer can be used in the Old Testament is as a legal representative on behalf of someone, as someone who mediates. And, and that's the redeemer that Job has in mind here. He knows that, that there is a redeemer who lives, a Redeemer who has access with God. So he knows that this Redeemer has to be God himself in some fashion, whether he can articulate in that word or not, to have access with God, you would have to be equal to God. So it has to be God in some way. He knows that that someone, that Redeemer who lives, will bring about um, this mediation. He will take on Job's case, and he will triumph over it all. He will triumph over all of the suffering, all of the conditions behind the suffering, all of the causes of that suffering, and all of the consequences of that suffering. He's putting his trust in that this Redeemer will indeed triumph over it all. So just as Job feels like he's slipping away to the grave, something greater is alive in his heart. And it is somehow connected to the very God he fears, the very God he can't figure out, the very God that he has great uncertainty with, and yet is the very God that he is trusting. And what that is, is that God doesn't quit on his promises. God doesn't bail on what he says. God doesn't fail what he purposes. The Bible calls this the steadfast love of God. It's an important expression in the Old Testament. It refers to God making and keeping the biggest, deepest, most eternal promise one could ever make, and that nothing will thwart him from seeing that through. And the reason why he makes that kind of a promise is because he's filled with an unending love for his people. Our perspective about our lives, our suffering, our world, and God may get skewed and skewered in this world and in this life. They can even get broken, but it doesn't mean God has quit or failed or forgotten. The Psalms are so helpful. Many of them closely associate crying out, overwhelming suffering, with the rehearsing of the steadfast love of God in those very moments. I've referred to Psalm 13 many times. It's a psalm that cries out, how long can all this go on in my life? 
It's a, it's a series of how longs that are really ultimately a why. Why God? Why God? Why God? Then it moves into, well, I don't really have anywhere else to go. So God, here's my prayer again. No answers. No answers to the whys. No answers to the prayer. And it ends with these words. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Even in the midst of all those whys, and that, well, I'm going to just pray it again, God. There's still something there. Underneath and in the midst of it all, I've trusted in your steadfast love. I, I don't have anything else to hold on to. Take Psalm 31, verse 7, again, a context of great suffering. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. Perhaps that will is in a future day. Maybe it's hard in that day for that psalmist to rejoice and be glad. But because of the steadfast love of God, the psalmist is believing that he will rejoice. Even though he's in great affliction and distress. Take Psalm 94. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived, soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, help, held me up. In the midst of great despairing, as if slipping away from God himself, it was God who held the psalmist up. Or take Psalm 107, an incredible psalm that I would encourage you to read on your own. It goes through a, several different vignettes of suffering and affliction. Some because of the, the world in which we live in that is some kind of suffering that sounds a lot like Job's. Some suffering that's brought on because of our own sin and stupidness. And it goes through each one of them and there's a refrain at the end of them. Thank thanking God for his steadfast love, even in the context of such suffering. And the psalm ends with this charge. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In the midst of whatever circumstances that you face in this life and suffering that you might be in right now, the call to wisdom is really a call to consider the steadfast love of God in the midst of those very crises that you face. No matter how Job's struggle was, no matter how wild he struggled, God did not give up on him. In Job 1 and 2, God said Job didn't do anything to cause this suffering. And then in Job 42, God shows mercy to Job in vindicating him before his friends and then restoring him. Before and after the events and the effects of such suffering, in the midst of all of that complaining and all of that crying out and all of that despairing and all of that questioning of God and all of that confusion, God did not bail on Job. There's a lesson here for us. The struggle with suffering is real, but so is in greater way the steadfast love of God. God didn't bail on Job when Job questioned God's justice. 
What does that tell you about God? How does that relate to you? In those long hours of the night, would you question God as well? Is filled with a steadfast love, friends. And that steadfast love that God has is our means to be steadfast in the midst of suffering. Our steadfastness through suffering isn't because we dug deep and pulled up our boots, figured it out. It's because we've come to realize the steadfast love of God. Even if it's obscured, shadowy to us. Suffering and circumstances don't get the final say. Not over you, not over your life. Job did not cause the events that led to his tremendous suffering. And while he struggled on the effects of suffering, he knew he was not the cause. The cause is wrapped up in the mystery of God's sovereignty, a mystery we won't fully ever understand. But just because it's mysterious doesn't mean that the God who is sovereign isn't the same God who has steadfast love. God's steadfast Lord toward us is our means of steadfastness for him, even in explicable suffering. I can say that with confidence because that's how the New Testament interprets it. In James chapter 5, we find James the author of James in the New Testament letter, is seeking to encourage believers to live wisely and to live well even as they are suffering. Suffering for their faith, suffering inexplicable hardships, the loss of family and livelihood, to be kicked out of what they've only ever known in their life, to never see some folks ever again, and for some to be martyred, just simply because they trusted Christ for salvation. So he wrote to encourage them to remain steadfast. And he says this in James chapter 5. Behold, we considered those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Wait, what? He, wait a minute. He was despairing. He wanted to die. He cursed the day of his birth. He questioned God and his justice and his sovereignty. He expressed openly said, I'm really confused. None of this makes any sense, but I'm still going to hope in him. Do you relate to that? Do you think Job as like a superhero who was unstained by the suffering of his life? Like he remained above it and never questioned God and said, bring it on. No, he cried out. He couldn't sleep. His face was red. He was beaten, man. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. I hope you hear that there's a lot more than just some moralistic be like Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The steadfastness of Job is really a story of the compassionate mercy and steadfast love of God. Now, We may get flummoxed by pain and loss and unanswered questions of longing and of the dread of hope. Job 
at his worst, never slipped out of the grip of God's grace. To you, friend, who may be suffering, you at your worst, in your most raw and vulnerable questioning before God, cannot slip out of his steadfast love. God moves in a mysterious way. He works out his purposes as he pleases. We are sometimes and most times obscured from the blueprint. We are definitely buffeted by the storms. And we may only perceive a frowning providence, but behind that perception is a smiling face for you and over you. And so I say, may the steadfast love of God be to you a buoy as you hold on to him in the midst of a life that can be inexplicably hard. And one day you will see and know. You will see and know him. May he strengthen you until that day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And as we consider it this day, we pray that you would help us uh, to be encouraged, even in the face of things that are beyond us, beyond our ability to understand, beyond our capacities to endure, that you would buoy us with your steadfast love. God, may we, even in our threadbare weariness, know that you are God and that you are good. Would you encourage us with that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I just like this verse. It's kind of a pre-benediction from 1 Chronicles 16. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, 